Section six of the Adventures of Gerard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How the Brigadier Captured Saragossa Continued. The cathedral was brilliantly lit within, and a number of people were passing in and out, so I entered, thinking that I was less likely to be accosted there, and that I might have quiet to form my plans. It was certainly a singular sight, for the place had been turned into a hospital, a refuge, and a storehouse. One aisle was crammed with provisions, another was littered with sick and wounded, while in the centre a great number of helpless people had taken up their abode, and had even lit their cooking-fires upon the mosaic floors. There were many at prayer, so I knelt in the shadow of a pillar, and I prayed with all my heart that I might have the good luck to get out of this scrape alive, and that I might do such a deed that night as would make my name as famous in Spain as it had already become in Germany. I waited until the clock struck three, and then I left the cathedral and made my way towards the convent of the Madonna, where the assault was to be delivered. You will understand, you who know me so well, that I was not the man to return tamely to the French camp, with the report that our agent was dead, and that other means must be found of entering the city. Either I should find some means to finish his uncompleted task, or there would be a vacancy for a senior captain in the Hussars of Conflans. I passed unquestioned down the broad boulevard, which I have already described, until I came to the great stone convent which formed the outwork of the defence. It was built in a square with a garden in the centre, in this garden some hundreds of men were assembled, all armed and ready, for it was known, of course, within the town that this was the point against which the French attack was likely to be made. Up to this time our fighting all over Europe had always been done between one army and another. It was only here in Spain that we learned how terrible a thing it is to fight against a people. On the one hand there is no glory— for what glory could be gained by defeating this rabble of elderly shopkeepers, ignorant peasants, fanatical priests, excited women, and all the other creatures who made up the garrison? On the other hand there were extreme discomfort and danger, for these people would give you no rest, would observe no rules of war, and were desperately earnest in their desire, by hook or by crook, to do you an injury. I began to realize how odious was our task, as I looked upon the motley but ferocious groups who were gathered round the watchfires in the garden of the convent of the Madonna. It was not for us soldiers to think about politics, but from the beginning there always seemed to be a curse upon this war in Spain. However, at the moment I had no time to brood over such matters as these. There was, as I have said, no difficulty in getting as far as the convent garden, but to pass inside the convent unquestioned was not so easy. The first thing which I did was to walk round the garden, and I was soon able to pick out one large stained-glass window which must belong to the chapel. I had understood from Hubert that the Mother Superior's room, in which the powder was stored, was near to this, and that the train had been laid through a hole in the wall from some neighbouring cell. I must at all costs get into the convent. There was a guard at the door, and how could I get in without explanations? but a sudden inspiration showed me how the thing might be done. In the garden was a well, and beside the well were a number of empty buckets. I filled two of these and approached the door. 
The errand of a man who carries a bucket of water in each hand does not need to be explained. The guard opened to let me through. I found myself in a long stone-flagged corridor, lit with lanterns, with the cells of the nuns leading out from one side of it. Now at last I was on the high road to success. I walked on without hesitation, for I knew by my observations in the garden which way to go for the chapel. A number of Spanish soldiers were lounging and smoking in the corridor, several of whom addressed me as I passed. I fancy it was for my blessing that they asked, and my ora pro nobis seemed to entirely satisfy them. Soon I had got as far as the chapel, and it was easy enough to see that the cell next door was used as a magazine, for the floor was all black, with powder in front of it. The door was shut, and two fierce-looking fellows stood on guard outside of it, one of them with a key stuck in his belt. Had we been alone, it would not have been long before it would have been in my hand, but with his comrade there it was impossible for me to hope to take it by force. The cell next door to the magazine, on the far side from the chapel, must be the one which belonged to Sister Angela. It was half open. I took my courage in both hands, and leaving my buckets in the corridor, I walked unchallenged into the room. I was prepared to find half a dozen fierce Spanish desperadoes within, but what actually met my eyes was even more embarrassing. The room had apparently been set aside for the use of some of the nuns, who for some reason had refused to quit their home. Three of them were within. One an elderly, stern-faced dame, who was evidently the mother superior. The others, young ladies of charming appearance. They were seated together at the far side of the room, but they all rose at my entrance, and I saw, with some amazement by their manner and expressions, that my coming was both welcome and expected. In a moment my presence of mind had returned, and I saw exactly how the matter lay. Naturally, since an attack was about to be made upon the convent, these sisters had been expecting to be directed to some place of safety. Probably they were under vow not to quit the walls, and they had been told to remain in this cell until they received further orders. In any case, I adapted my conduct to this supposition, since it was clear that I must get them out of the room, and this would give me a ready excuse to do so. I first cast a glance at the door, and observed that the key was within. I then made a gesture to the nuns to follow me. The mother superior asked me some question, but I shook my head impatiently and beckoned to her again. She hesitated, but I stamped my foot and called them forth in so imperious a manner that they came at once. They would be safer in the chapel, and thither I led them, placing them at the end which was farthest from the magazine. As the three nuns took their places before the altar, my heart bounded with joy and pride within me, for I felt that the last obstacle had been lifted from my path. And yet how often have I not found that that is the very moment of danger? I took a last glance at the Mother Superior, and to my dismay I saw that her piercing dark eyes were fixed, with an expression in which surprise was deepening into suspicion, upon my right hand. There were two points which might well have attracted her attention. One was that it was red with the blood of the sentinel, whom I had stabbed in the tree. That alone might count for little, as the knife was as familiar as the breviary to the monks of Saragossa. But on my forefinger I wore a heavy gold ring, the gift of a certain German baroness, whose name I may not mention. It shone brightly in the light of the altar lamp. 
Now a ring upon a friar's hand is an impossibility, since they are vowed to absolute poverty. I turned quickly and made for the door of the chapel, but the mischief was done. As I glanced back I saw that the mother superior was already hurrying after me. I ran through the chapel door and along the corridor, but she called out some shrill warning to the two guards in front. Fortunately, I had the presence of mind to call out also, and to point down the passage, as if we were both pursuing the same object. Next instant I had dashed past them, sprang into the cell, slammed the heavy door, and fastened it upon the inside. With a bolt above and below, and a huge lock in the centre, it was a piece of timber that would take some forcing. Even now, if they had had the wit to put a barrel of powder against the door, I should have been ruined. It was their only chance, for I had come to the final stage of my adventure. Here at last, after such a string of dangers as few men have ever lived to talk of, I was at one end of the powder train, with the Saragossa magazine at the other. They were howling like wolves out in the passage, and muskets were crashing against the door. I paid no heed to their clamour, but I looked eagerly around for that train of which Hubert had spoken. Of course, it must be at the side of the room next to the magazine. I crawled along it on my hands and knees, looking into every crevice, but no sign could I see. Two bullets flew through the door and flattened themselves against the wall. The thudding and smashing grew ever louder. I saw a grey pile in a corner, flew to it with a cry of joy, and found that it was only dust. Then I got back to the side of the door where no bullets could ever reach me. They were streaming freely into the room, and I tried to forget this fiendish howling in my ear, and to think out where this train could be. It must have been carefully laid by Hubert, lest these nuns should see it. I tried to imagine how I should myself have arranged it, had I been in his place. My eye was attracted by a statue of St. Joseph, which stood in the corner. There was a wreath of leaves along the edge of the pedestal, with a lamp burning amidst them. I rushed across to it and tore the leaves aside. Yes, yes, there was a thin black line, which disappeared through a small hole in the wall. I tilted over the lamp and threw myself on the ground. Next instant came a roar like thunder. The walls wavered and tottered around me. The ceiling clattered down from above, and over the yell of the terrified Spaniards was heard the terrific shout of the storming column of grenadiers. As in a dream, a happy dream, I heard it, and then I heard no more. When I came to my senses, two French soldiers were propping me up, and my head was singing like a kettle. I staggered to my feet and looked around me. The plaster had fallen, the furniture was scattered, and there were rents in the bricks, but no sign of a breach. In fact, the walls of the convent had been so solid that the explosion of the magazine had been insufficient to throw them down. On the other hand, it had caused such a panic among the defenders that our stormers had been able to carry the windows and throw open the doors almost without assistance. As I ran out into the corridor, I found it full of troops, and I met Marshal Lan himself, who was entering with his staff. He stopped and listened eagerly to my story. "'Splendid, Captain Gerard, splendid!' he cried. "'These facts will certainly be reported to the Emperor.' "'I would suggest to your Excellency,' said I, "'that I have only finished the work that was planned and carried out by Monsieur Hubert, "'who gave his life for the cause.' "'His services will not be forgotten,' said the Marshal. "'Meanwhile, Captain Gerard, 
"'It is half-past four, and you must be starving after such a night of exertion. "'My staff and I will breakfast inside the city. "'I assure you that you will be an honoured guest.' "'I will follow your excellency,' said I. "'There is a small engagement which detains me.' "'He opened his eyes. "'At this hour?' "'Yes, sir,' I answered. "'My fellow officers, whom I never saw until last night, "'will not be content unless they catch another glimpse of me "'the first thing this morning.' "'Au revoir, then,' said Marshal Lannes, as he passed upon his way. I hurried through the shattered door of the convent. When I reached the roofless house in which we had held the consultation the night before, I threw off my gown, and I put on the busby and sabre which I had left there. Then, a hussar once more, I hurried onward to the grove which was our rendezvous. My brain was still reeling from the concussion of the powder, and I was exhausted by the many emotions which had shaken me during that terrible night. It is like a dream, all that walk in the first dim grey light of dawn, with the smouldering campfires around me, and the buzz of the waking army. Bugles and drums in every direction were mustering the infantry, for the explosion and the shouting had told their own tale. I strode onward until, as I entered the little clump of cork oaks behind the horse lines, I saw my twelve comrades waiting in a group, their sabres at their sides. They looked at me curiously as I approached. Perhaps with my powder-blackened face and my blood-stained hands, I seemed a different Gerard to the young captain whom they had made game of the night before. "'Good morning, gentlemen,' said I. "'I regret exceedingly if I have kept you waiting, but I have not been master of my own time.' They said nothing, but they still scanned me with curious eyes. I can see them now, standing in a line before me, tall men and short men, stout men and thin men, Olivier with his warlike moustache, the thin, eager face of Pelletan, young Houdin, flushed by his first duel, Mortier, with the sword cut across his wrinkled brow. I laid aside my busby and drew my sword. "'I have one favour to ask you, gentlemen,' said I, Marshal Lannes has invited me to breakfast, and I cannot keep him waiting.' "'What do you suggest?' asked Major Olivier. "'That you release me from my promise to give you five minutes each, and that you will permit me to attack you all together.' I stood upon my guard as I spoke. But their answer was truly beautiful, and truly French. With one impulse the twelve swords flew from their scabbards and were raised in salute. There they stood, the twelve of them, motionless, their heels together, each with his sword upright before his face. I staggered back from them. I looked from one to the other. For an instant I could not believe my own eyes. They were paying me homage. These, the men who had jeered me. Then I understood it all. I saw the effect that I had made upon them, and their desire to make reparation. When a man is weak he can steel himself against danger, but not against emotion. "'Comrades!' I cried. "'Comrades!' But I could say no more. Something seemed to take me by the throat and choke me, and then in an instant Olivier's arms were round me. Pelletin had seized me by the right hand, Mortier by the left. Some were patting me on the shoulder, some were clapping me on the back. On every side smiling faces were looking into mine. And so it was that I knew that I had won my footing in the Hussars of Conflans. End of section 6 and end of how the brigadier captured Saragossa.